Lord. You can have a seat. Good evening. Glad to see you here. It's a privilege that we are. I want to ask if you would join me in prayer before we get into the message tonight. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you that the cross, an instrument of torture and death, brings life. Thank you that you, the God of all grace, would you help us now? Speak to us by your spirit through your eternal word. Help us to respond with faith, with obedience, all for the glory of your name. Jesus, it's in your name and because of your life, your death, your resurrection, and all that you promised that we pray. Amen. Well, I was doing some light reading uh, this past week on the statistical analysis of the causes of death in children. I thought I'd share it with you. Um, in particular, the, the, one of the, um, it's not at the top, but it's near the top of all causes of death for those under the age of 20 is drowning. And it probably won't surprise you that the, the number one age group most likely to drown are toddlers. The second, very close to that age group, the second most likely age group to drown are teenagers, specifically teenage boys. And I think the reason why is, I, as I told my 13-year-old this past week, that all teenage boys are 10 feet tall and bulletproof, or so they think. Now, if you're a teenage boy here tonight, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I once was one, and I did some crazy things that uh, it is only by God's grace that I'm here. But the reality is that going out into the ocean or into the lake or a pond where most drownings actually happen for teenagers, these teenage boys, they, they want to spread their wings. They, they, they have this surge of testosterone and they're getting bigger and stronger. And they, they need to prove themselves to themselves, to others. And, and so they go out further. I, don't you think that's far enough? No, not yet. I can go further. I can go deeper. And they overestimate their strength. They overestimate their abilities. And they underestimate the power of the waves or the current. They underestimate the danger of the murky water. It can become the end of them. I know this is somewhat of a morbid way to begin a message, and I maybe just ruined a lot of your summer plans. I apologize, boys. But... Um, it illustrates a point that if we lack clear understanding or a sober judgment of certain realities in life, the consequences can be deadly. And tonight I want to point out two realities, two spiritual realities. These are fundamental and vital realities to all of life that we need to learn about and we need to be reminded of often from God's Word 
about these two realities, the realities of sin and grace. These two spiritual realities of sin and grace are found quite often in this sixth chapter of the book of Romans. So if you would open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, in the New Testament, right before First and Second Corinthians, after the four Gospels, and then Acts. You have Romans chapter 6. We have these realities of sin and grace. And what happens? What happens if we don't have a clear understanding, if we don't have a sober judgment, or if we don't hold it constantly before us and oh, how quickly it leaves? If we don't have it or hold in front of us the, the realities of the true nature of sin and the true nature of grace, we will too easily be fooled by the too-good-to-be-true promises of sin. We will play with fire and we will get burned. We will often do that because we're presumptuous of grace. But if not, perhaps if we don't have a true understanding, a real understanding of the true nature of sin and grace, then we won't be presumptuous of grace. We'll be skeptical of it. And so that either we will not feel the need to fully rely on Jesus and what he has done, or we won't feel confident enough to do so, that he really can't hold all of our weight. Either way, if we do not hold these two realities of the true nature of sin and the true nature of grace before us, then we will not be able to grasp or appreciate or be impacted by the full goodness of Good Friday. This is Good Friday, but I need to begin with the bad. I want to give you three truths about the nature of sin, and they're not good. They're important. The first truth about sin I want to start off with a negative aspect, that sin is not a mistake. It's not simply an accident, a, a slip-up that you can just excuse away by saying, oh, I forgot, or I, I didn't know, or I didn't mean to. The, it's like the man who commits adultery against his wife and then says, but, okay, nobody's perfect. It was, it was just a mistake. It was one mistake, as if it was just the same as spilling over his glass of orange juice or forgetting to put bread on the grocery shopping list. They are not the same. See, when we sin, it's a choice. Sin is a choice. Every time you sin, even if it's not a, a fully well-thought-out planned thing, you choose to sin, which leads to the second Vital truth about the nature of sin. Sin is not only a choice, sin is a preference. It's a preference. The difference between a choice and a preference is you choose something you see first because you prefer it. You choose something you want to choose. Again, we don't always think it through, but at that moment, we prefer sin. We prefer it to what? To God. All sin is a preference, preferring something to God. Preferring something to obeying him and honoring him, which is the third, brings up the third truth about the nature of sin. It is a choice, it is a preference, and it is an allegiance. Sin is an exclusive allegiance. You're choosing to devote yourself to become the servant of one or another. Romans chapter 6, we're going to spend most of our time in verse 23, but I want to start here, down here in verse 11. Romans 6, 11 through 13. 
The Apostle Paul says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do you see the two options? You can either be dead to sin and alive to God, or you can be alive to sin and dead to God. There is no neutral ground. Allegiance is what we are doing when we sin. Look at verse 12. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. That's a funny phrase. That sin has passions. I didn't notice, notice this until I was studying for this message that, that Paul is personifying sin. He's making it like, let's pretend sin is a person and it has desires, passions, and that it can rule and reign over you. And he says, but don't let it. It wants to be your king. It wants your allegiance, but don't give it. Verse 13, do not present your members, that is your whole body, yourself, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. The picture here is of of somebody saying, I'm going to be the subject of this kingdom. I'm going to be the soldier under this king. Don't present yourself giving to sin as instruments, that is, as weapons for unrighteousness. But instead, present yourselves to God. Give allegiance to God as king, the only rightful king, as those who have been brought from death to life, and present your members, offer yourself in service to God as instruments for righteousness. Things that are true and good and bring peace and are loving things that are right in God's eyes. So do you you see what's happening here is that there are two kingdoms. There is, whether you call it the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of righteousness and unrighteousness or obedience and disobedience, the kingdom of of light and the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self or of Satan, whatever you call it, there are two kingdoms and only two kingdoms. And you are always giving your allegiance to one or the other. You're giving your devotion to one or the other. And Paul's argument, trying to persuade us to give our allegiance to God and God alone. Because there is a war between these two kingdoms. A war for your soul. A war for your allegiance. The outcome of this war has already been determined. Spoiler alert, God wins. God wins. The question then is, will you? Which side are you on? Whose kingdom are you in? Where are you putting your allegiance? God wins. And if you are not with him, you are against him. And all who are against him will lose. You know, one of the most important one of the most neglected, one of the most forgotten, one of the most rejected truths about the nature of sin is not just what it is, but what it does. We're always being told and we're telling ourselves that sin doesn't do much to us. It's not true. Sin is a choice, it's a preference, and it's an allegiance. But what sin does is it kills Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. It's death. Sin ends in death, always. It doesn't start out that way, though, does it? I mean, it seems like life. It's, it's the convenient, the comfortable, the easy, the, the pleasurable way. It seems like this is the right way to go. There are so many others on this road, so why not walk it? But in the end, it always ends in death. As James says, that sin starts as a desire. 
It, it conceives into this sin. And when it's fully grown, it brings forth death. I say, okay, if, if that's true, then why would anyone sin? Or at least why would they continue to sin? After maybe the first, second, third, maybe even ten times, why would they keep doing it if it always brings death? Why, indeed, why would we prefer it? In large measure, I think the answer is that we are not holding in front of our eyes the reality that sin always brings death. Sin kills. It destroys. The wages of sin is death. But it doesn't advertise that, does it? No, it, it, it lies. Sin promises that this is, this is the road of happiness. It's only when you get too far in do you realize it was actually the road of misery all along. Oh, it promises life, but it can only bring death. Sin, you see, the promise of it is too good to be true. And it often fools us. Oh, but we must not play the part of the victim, thinking, well, we're just the innocent bystander. We just got roped into this. It wasn't our fault. Because remember, we choose to sin because we prefer it. We give it our allegiance. And so we deserve every consequence that we get. The wages of our sin is death. That word wages in verse 23, it's a specific term that's used every other time to refer to what is paid out to military soldiers. Their general or their king pays them at the end of their uh, their tenure in as a soldier, this is what you get. Here's your compensation. If you made it through, you get paid. What does sin pay? Death. That's the wages. Your sin earns you death. When you serve death or sin, when you serve and submit to sin, when you commit to it and you get devote to it and you give your allegiance to sin, it always get compensates. But the payout is death. This is what we have earned. It's what we deserve. See, death is not merely the natural outcome of a life of sin. It is the deserved result. It is the earned reward. It is the compensation for our life of sin. Death is undeniably and unbreakably tied to sin. We know this intuitively because we see it. We see it all the time, every day. There is this, the psychological and emotional death that comes when in shame, the, this burden of guilt and of paranoia that comes when we sin. Who's going to find out? How is this going to, I hope they don't catch me in this, or how is this going to turn back against me? There's relational death when we break people's hearts, or they ours. We ruin relationships. We lose friends and family. There's financial death. And so many other negative things. There's even physical death as a result, a direct result of sin. You go to a prison and you ask, do you regret what you did? They might say, only because it got me in here, or maybe they're truly sorry for it. I don't know. But what they might say is, uh, they might answer the question that Paul gives in verse 21. What fruit were you getting at? Right, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Asking, how's that been working out for you? When you've been giving yourself to sin and allegiance to it, how has that been working out for you? Well, I get a lot of death in a lot of different ways. But you say, yeah, but does it? I mean, we know of, maybe, 
that there is thousands, maybe even millions of people who break the law every day and don't get penalized for it. Did you know there are over 250,000 unsolved murders in the U.S.? All those murderers then are not in prison. They're not paying for it. Where's their death that they got from their they get from their sin? I think you said the wages of sin was death, and they're not getting it, so what gives? You add to this that there are how many sins that are not recognized by the state as crimes? Does sin always bring death? Yes. Yes, it does. Because, you see, our problem is, and this is what Satan uses to his advantage against us, is that there's often a delay. It's not just uh, always the case that you sin and immediately there's a direct result of some kind of death. There's often, most often, a delay between the sin and the consequence. So we don't always want to connect the dots. We blame it on something else, maybe someone else. But all these other kinds of death are mere shadows. Even physical death is a mere shadow cast by the substance, the real death. The book of Revelation calls it the second death. It is the wrathful fury of the just judgment of our holy God. It is hell. That's the death Paul's talking about. The eternal death. Hell is the just judgment for sinners. And we are all sinners. Now if that offends you, that I've just said that you are a sinner and that you deserve God's judgment. It shouldn't. It shouldn't offend you because, one, you know it's true. And it shouldn't offend you because if, a, if the doctor tells you that your years of smoking has led to a, a, a so badly damaged heart that you are going to die, you shouldn't be offended. You should be sobered. You should weep. You should beg for help. And if he tells you, yes, there is good news. I have this new, this new, clean, healthy heart that I can give you. And it, it won't just prolong your life, but it will give you a better life than you have now. Then you shouldn't be offended. You should rejoice and say, where do I sign up? If you don't understand this bad news, if you don't grasp and receive this bad news that you are a sinner and that the wages of your sin is death, and if you don't hold it before you constantly, you will not grasp or appreciate or be impacted by the full goodness of Good Friday because you won't really grasp or understand grace. Grace, abounding grace, is what makes Good Friday good. What is it, though? What is grace? Again, let me give you three truths about the nature of grace. Number one, grace is free. Grace is free. Look at verse 23, Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God. The, the word in the original language here for a free gift here has the root of it, grace. The free gift of God is a gracious gift. It's not wages. You see how they're the opposites? You either get wages, something you worked for and you earned, or you get a gracious free gift that you cannot work for and do not earn. It's a free gift. 
is getting something good when you have not earned it. Last Sunday, I was preaching about the Tenth Commandment and about how God is so generous to us, how He blesses us and is so kind to us to, to give us gifts. He, he gives us the, the ability to hear maybe a baby's laugh or a hug from a dear friend or, or the clear blue summer sky with a gentle breeze on your face or a good story or about a billion other things that God gives you. But they're not just kindness. They're not just generous goodness. They are grace. Every gift from God is undeserved. It's His undeserved kindness. It's His unmerited favor. You say, that, that, that's, isn't that too good to be true? Because I know there's no such thing as a free lunch. And so you can't just get something for nothing. It can't be that God would just give us a free gift. Well, it is true. And it's better than good. Because the second truth about grace is not is that it's not only free, but it's for sinners. Grace is a free gift for sinners. So you see, it's not just that we are undeserving. We are anti-deserving. It's not just unmerited favor. It is demerited favor. We have lived our lives giving allegiance to sin. Any good we get then is a gracious gift to sinners. I was reading a book of Puritan prayers this past week and one, just one line stuck in my mind. He says, God, I'm thankful that my trials are fewer than my sins. That's what grace is. My trials are here. My sins are way up here. My sins and my blessings are more than my trials. That is grace. It's grace. It's it's a free gift for sinners from God. Grace is a free gift for sinners, and it is from God. Grace is a free gift for sinners from the God who is holy, the holy God whom we have sinned against, from the wrathful God that we've rebelled against, from the all-satisfying God that we have preferred other things to. Grace is a free gift to sinners from the God who is the one and only God, and yet we've chosen to worship that which is not God. It is from the God who is the supreme ruler and the high king of heaven, and we have given allegiance to someone who is not a king, to sin. We've let him reign in our mortal bodies. Do You see, this is why the free gift from God is grace. But because we cannot earn it from him, we do not deserve it from him, we cannot demand any good from him. But he does promise good. Gracious good. What is the good that he promises? For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. He promises life. God's abounding grace ends in life. Just like death comes from sin, so life comes from grace, from God's grace. Because if he gives us grace, if he gives us life, it, it is pure grace. We deserve it not, but instead we deserve death, eternal death, judgment. Eternal life is the exact opposite here of death. The wages of sin is this eternal death, but the free gift of God, His grace, is eternal life. Just as death here does not refer simply to the physical and temporary death, 
but to the everlasting punishment as a kind of perpetual dying in hell, so too the life that is promised by grace, this eternal life that is promised, is not just life that goes on and on and on forever, mere quantity of life, but it's, it's a special, an infinitely better kind of life that lasts forever and ever. It is both quality and quantity. This is eternal life. It is that one day, all those who receive God's gift of grace, if they have eternal life, it is that one day there will be a perfect harmony that they will enjoy, where heaven and earth are one, and that there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more strife, no more sin, and no more death. No physical death and no eternal death. This is eternal life. God's promise, a free gift of grace, is leaps and bounds above the better, it's far better than the promise of sin. But perhaps, perhaps you're listening and you're saying, see, almost done? And you're thinking, this is just sounds like religious stuff, spiritual speak. Or maybe even, uh, yeah, okay, all that's good and fine, but it's just far off in the future. It, it's, it seems irrelevant and even maybe even boring for right here, right now. Let me reassure you that this is the most relevant, the most important, the most necessary and encouraging news that you can possibly hear. That though you are a sinner and the wages of your sin is death, the free gift of God's grace is eternal life. But it's not just about someday. It's not just about someday far off, like when I die in, in 10, 20, 50, 80 years from now. That's not what it is. Not only. It is surely that. See, this, this promise of eternal life is something we have now. John says that we have eternal life if we have his grace. So this is a better promise than what sin promises because it's about life, a life of forgiveness now. It's eternal life that gives us peace with God now. It's eternal life that we have, that we have this life of knowing that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him now, who are called according to his purpose. He works it now. But God is not only working powerfully for us, He's also working powerfully in us. The last thing I want to say about grace is that grace is, a powerful, is powerful for life. It's powerful for life now. Look at Romans 6.23 again. It starts off with word for. For the wages of sin is death. That, that means it's connected to a, an argument that he's already in the process of making. He's been giving this message all the way, starting in chapter 5, verse 12. And really, all of the book of Romans up to this point, and this is kind of a culminating point right here. And his argument that he's giving in these, these two chapters here, what he's trying to persuade people to believe and to, and to do and to live, is that for those who are in Christ, by grace, through faith, that we should live our lives in allegiance to God. Lives of righteousness and obedience to God, giving our, presenting ourselves in service to Him. 
He says, because the saving grace of God is not only a forgiving kind of grace, it's a transforming kind of grace. Romans 6.23 is really just more fully answering Romans 6.1. Romans 6.1 says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He says in chapter 5 that whenever sin increases, God's grace increases all the more to cover it. And so someone might say, well, if God gets glory for being gracious to me when I sin, maybe I should just continue to sin and get to do whatever I feel like doing at any, any moment, and God can be gracious to me and get glory for that. Wouldn't this just be the best? Paul says, you're talking like a madman. No way. He says, no. And in verse 23, he says, no, and I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why you don't need to continue to sin so that grace may abound. He says, because our grace also abounds in our obedience. Grace also abounds in our sanctification, being made more like Jesus. It abounds in the fullness of our eternal life that we are experiencing now and will carry it on into the fullness later. The abounding grace of God is meant both to pardon us from the consequences of sin but also to empower us to overcome the controlling power of sin. By God's abounding grace, we receive eternal life. That all that comes with it, including a new heart that desires and greater increasing power to obey Him. And this connects to the bigger message that Paul is giving in the entire book of Romans. Namely, that the gospel of grace that abounds from God to sinners is fuller and bigger and goes deeper and lasts longer and is better than we could possibly imagine. But all of this, all of this is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 623, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want you to notice something. You you see that he's giving parallel contrast. He says, you got the wages and then you have the free gift and these are very different. When you work for, when you receive by grace is a free gift. He says you have the wages of sin and then you have the free gift of God. These are two different kings that you can give allegiance to. And he says it's the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. You see how there's opposites. But this last phrase in Christ Jesus our Lord, there is no explicit parallel contrast. But it is implied. It's what we are to understand from it. That if we are not in Christ Jesus our Lord, what will we get? Not the free gift of God's grace. Not eternal life. The wages of sin is death for all those who are outside of Jesus Christ. But the free gift is only for those who are in Christ. Who are in Christ Jesus our Lord by faith. For those who are in Christ by faith, He took our wages, death. And He gives us His wages, what He earned, life. Grace is free, but nothing has ever cost more. Nothing. Because Good Friday is about the cross. It's about the death of Jesus, the only sinless man to ever walk this earth, pure and perfect. And this is why Good Friday is good. Because his death secures life. His death promises grace as a free gift for sinners like us. Eternal life is free to us by grace. 
but it cost Jesus his life on the cross. So then this gift of life is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, through faith in Christ, trusting in who he is. He is Christ. That is the promised one, the Messiah, the promised one, the one who's been prophesied for thousands of years, been written about. The promised ruler over God's people and rescuer of God's people. He is Christ Jesus, the God-man, who had full humanity so that he could die, but full divinity so that he could bear the wrath of God. That he is both perfect in his righteousness and his holiness as man and as God. And he is Lord, the sovereign one who was crucified and then risen from the dead on Easter Sunday. This is who he is, but we must also have faith in what he has done. Live this life of perfection, always giving allegiance to the Father, always preferring him, always choosing him in perfect obedience from the heart all his life. And then he died. And yes, he was killed. He was murdered. And yet, he gave up his life. No one took it from him. He gave it up for us that we may have life. It's trusting not only in what he has done when he was here, but what he has been doing since and what he will do, what he's promised to do. You see, he, when he raised from the dead, he ascended on high where he is now interceding for his people, ruling over all things so sovereignly as Lord, and he will one day return. And he will both bring judgment and the fullness of salvation, the fullness of the good news, the fullness of the goodness that he inaugurated on Good Friday. We must trust in what he promises. He promises life, eternal life, that begins now as a shadow, just like death, but will consummate and and, and culminate in this perfect substance that will be unending, unfading, imperishable forever, and fullness of life. We sin. All of us. We are sinners. All of us. There are some sinners here who are in need of entering into eternal life. And there are some sinners here who need to continually hold before them the truth about sin and grace and to be stirred up to live in the newness of their eternal life that they have. And it's the same grace for both. It's the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We are all in need of grace, grace abounding. Grace that pardons and empowers. Grace that justifies and sanctifies. Grace that forgives and frees. Grace that cleanses and changes us. We need it all. Sin is what we all have done. Death is what we all deserve. Eternal life is what we all desire. And grace is what we all so desperately need. And this grace abounds. It abounds, overflowing in Christ Jesus, our Lord, through faith. Through faith. So if you cannot say this evening that Jesus Christ is your Lord because of your faith in Him, then you do not have the promise of life. You do not have the promise of grace. You have the wages of your sin, which is death. And this communion meal 
we're about to partake of is not yet for you. So instead of partaking of it when others do, I implore you, bow your head. Get on your knees if you must. And ask God to give you a real grasp, a clear understanding, a sober judgment about sin, the nature of it, and about grace and the glory of it. And come and talk to me afterwards. Or another one of the pastors, or another Christian maybe you came with, put it on a connection card that you want somebody to talk with you more about it. Or you can email us at prcpastors at pineyridgechurch.org. We would love to share with you more. This evening, if you are trusting in Christ for eternal life, you're trusting that God's grace comes to you by your faith in Jesus and all that he is and all that he's done and all that he's promised, I invite you to take your communion cup. If you've had your faith affirmed by other Christians in baptism in a local church and take out the wafer of bread that represents the body of Jesus Christ that was broken on the cross. It was broken on the cross as an act of grace, as a free gift for sinners. And take it with faith and all that it represents that by his death, you have life. In the same way, take the juice. It represents the blood of Jesus Christ poured out for sinners. Sinners who deserve nothing but death. And he was glad to give his life so that we might have life, eternal life. And it's all by grace, through faith in him. God's grace cannot be worked for, cannot be earned. And there is no one who has sin that is too great. His grace is always greater. Would you stand and praise him now?